Hello, everyone. Welcome to City Church Evansville, Life on Life, week three, where we talk about Jesus' priority, and that's life on life discipleship. You may have noticed that Jesus never used the word Christian. He simply said, follow me. That was the first thing he said to Peter when he called him, follow me, Matthew 4, verse 19. And it was one of the last things he said to Peter in the Gospel of John, follow me. Jesus' preferred method to describe those who followed him was disciple. As in Luke 14, verse 27, Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In the New Testament, followers of Jesus are called Christian only three times. Believers, 15 times. But disciples, 235 times. Jesus' call was not to invite him into your heart or to say the sinner's prayer. Jesus' call was, and it remains, follow me. But our question is, what did Jesus mean when he said, follow me? Well, it's important to know the word disciple was not unique to Jesus. When he called his followers disciples, none of them had to ask what that meant. Discipleship was a common concept in the ancient world. Plato had disciples, Confucius had disciples, and, and Jesus had disciples. It was commonly understood a disciple was not simply a student digesting information or content. A disciple was, we might call him or her, a life learner. A life learner, experientially learning from the master. Dallas Willard suggests that our closest word today might be apprentice. And though it's a bit dated, we know what an apprentice is. An apprentice is someone who does life with and observes the master in order that he or she may increasingly be able to do what the master does. My favorite definition of discipleship is from that same Dallas Willard, who was a, a philosophy professor at USC. Willard said a disciple of Jesus is three things. It's someone who... First, trust Jesus and that Jesus is who he says he is. Secondly, spends time with Jesus in order to learn how to live his or her own life as Jesus would live it. And third, rearranges his or her life in order to keep on doing that. So a disciple is learning from Jesus how to lead his life. And not just the Sunday religious part of your life, but your whole life. So much so that you are willing to rearrange your lifestyle in order to keep on following Jesus. There's nothing automatic about becoming a disciple. Following Jesus does not come naturally to us. You don't drift into it. In fact, uh, the Bible suggests, if anything, we, we naturally drift away from it. But you can see from Willard's definition that discipleship is not just trusting in something Jesus once did long ago, but it's trusting the whole Christ with the whole of your life. And then spending time with Jesus in order to learn from him how to live your life today as Jesus would live it. And then, finally, rearranging your priorities and how you spend your time in order to make that happen. The last thing that Jesus said to his disciples was, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's Matthew 28. You may know it's often called the Great Commission. Mission statements are all the rage today. Mission statements answer a question, why does this organization exist? I'd like to suggest the church doesn't have to go on a retreat or hire a consultant to discover our mission, because our Lord has already made it clear. We are to go and make, not fans or converts, but to go and make disciples. This is our business. You might know the name Peter Drucker. He was a famed uh, management consultant. Drucker said every failure of any organization can be traced back to two questions. What's our business, and how's business? For Drucker, if you're leading a business and something goes awry, it often goes back to losing sight of what's our business and how's business. Applied to the church, 
applied to followers of Jesus, what is our business? Well, we've already seen, according to Jesus, it's to go and make disciples. But here's the million-dollar question. How's business? I'd like to suggest that you and I are living in the midst of an unprecedented crisis in the Western church, and that is the lack of discipleship among those who call ourselves Christians. Dallas Willard called this lack of discipleship in the local church the great omission. Perhaps you've asked yourself, what's wrong with the church? Well, someone who spent a lot of time thinking about that question was the German pastor martyr named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. His book, The Cost of Discipleship, addressed our question directly. Bonhoeffer wrote, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church today. Cheap grace means grace without discipleship. He continues, those who use grace as a dispensation from following Christ are deceiving themselves. And he concludes, although our church is orthodox as far as her doctrine of grace is concerned, we are no longer sure we are members of a church which follows its Lord, close quote. Bonhoeffer was writing in the 1930s. Do you think that's less true today? In calling the church back to discipleship, Bonhoeffer found an American successor in the one we've already named, Dallas Willard, who was a brilliant and kind professor, yet he went after the Protestant evangelical church for stripping the gospel of its living content. Willard charged us with turning the life of faith into what he called a barcode faith. We're in simply by saying the right words, we believe we're given a ticket for heaven when our life is over. Willard famously called this a gospel of sin management because that's all it addresses, our sin. It speaks to what we were saved from, but it says almost nothing about what we were saved for. And for Willard, such a distortion allows us to miss Jesus entirely. Willard lamented, it is now considered to be a part of the good news that one does not have to be a disciple of Jesus in order to be a Christian. So what do you think? Do you agree with Bonhoeffer and Willard? Do you agree that we have a discipleship problem today? Well, some churches have tried to address this with discipleship classes, but these are usually electives, often add-ons, and for the uber-committed, as if there were two classes of Christians, uh, the real Christians, uh, excuse me, the, the nominal Christians, and then maybe for the advanced disciples. But discipleship is not a class you take after becoming a follower of Jesus. To follow Christ is to become a disciple of Christ. I think it's informative to ask if this was, was Jesus' top priority to go and make disciples, if this is the primary mission of the church, how have we lost sight of this? Well, vaccine are in the, vaccines are in the news these days, and we know how vaccines work. You actually get injected with a tiny bit of the real disease so that your body creates antibodies to protect you from ever getting the real thing. I mean, medically, you are inoculated. And that's what we're doing today in our churches. We're giving people just enough of the gospel thereby ensuring they never get the real thing. We are effectively vaccinating people against a wholehearted life of following the whole Jesus. And most distressingly, we're doing it in Jesus' name. We're inoculating people from ever really knowing the real Jesus. And most terrifying of all, we're enabling people to rest secure in a way of life that ought to be terribly unsettling. Yes, I hope you are asking, what is wrong with the church? All the while remembering that we are a part of it. Well, as a patient in need of deep healing myself, I'd like to suggest a diagnosis for us. No doubt the causes are widespread, but I'd like to suggest our discipleship disease is traceable to four main culprits. Each needs to be treated and none stands alone. We'll go into some uh, uh, depth on the first and just touch on the other three. But the first culprit is a what I'm calling a truncated gospel. A truncated gospel. To truncate is to shorten or to diminish by cutting off. And I'd suggest we have diminished the gospel of Jesus. And if you don't believe me, I can prove that to you. 
Suppose you were to walk up to a stranger on the street and ask him or her, can you tell me what is the central message of Jesus? What is the central message of Jesus? Well, here are some answers you might get, that love is the central message of Jesus, or forgiveness, that the central message of Jesus is the forgiveness of sins, or the gospel, the good news, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's important to ask how you might have answered the question. At the 1974 Lausanne Conference on World Evangelism, Michael Green asked rhetorically, how much have you heard about the kingdom of God? And his answer was, not much. It's not in our language. But it was Jesus' prime concern. One of the leading scholars of the evangelical world, Dr. I. Howard Marshall of Aberdeen University, commented, during the past 16 years, I can recollect only two occasions on which I have heard sermons specifically devoted to the theme of the kingdom of God. I find this silence surprising because it's universally agreed by Bible scholars that the central theme of the teaching of Jesus was the kingdom of God. But we don't need the testimony of renowned New Testament scholars to convince us all we need is a copy of the New Testament in our hands. It should strike us that the Gospels mention the kingdom of God at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Here are the first words Mark records Jesus saying. This is Mark 1, verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Similarly, Matthew records, this is Matthew 4, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 23 continues, And he went throughout all Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Luke goes so far as to say, To preach the kingdom is the the whole reason Jesus came. This is Luke 4, verse 42. Jesus went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving. But Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. All of Jesus' teaching on love and forgiveness, even his cross, everything is to be understood in light of, in Jesus' words, the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Jesus begins his ministry with this phrase. He fills his ministry with this phrase. His most popular teaching tool, the parables, what were they all about? They were all about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. And finally, and I bet you've never noticed this before because you haven't been looking for it, but Jesus ends his ministry talking about it with his disciples after the resurrection. Listen to Acts 1, verse 3. To them he presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during those 40 days, and, quote, speaking about the kingdom of God. Hmm, ever notice that? Now, if the kingdom is the central message of Jesus, Why is it almost none of us would have answered our earlier question, what is the central message of Jesus with? The kingdom. Not only that, why is it most of us are not even sure what it is? And some of us have spent our entire lives in church. Why do we not talk about it? If the kingdom is the central message of Jesus, why is it so often ignored? How could we have overlooked what Jesus himself says was the very reason he came? Well, our gospel is truncated. Our gospel is too small. The image that I like to use uh, to help me understand this is imagine a big, piping hot apple pie. And imagine that pie is, to use Jesus' phrase, the gospel of God, or the gospel of the kingdom. We've taken a slice out of it, one we can digest, and we've said, here's the pie. And it's true. It is a piece of the pie, but it's not the pie. And what is this piece that we tend to cut out? Well, in the evangelical world, evangelicals tend to focus on the forgiveness of sins as the whole gospel. And it's true. We are rebels who have a sin problem that separates us from a holy God. And God bridged that separation by sending his son to die for our sins so that all who believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. And moreover, it's true that far from merely being a slice of the pie, you could say forgiveness of sins is the very center of the good news 
but, and this is critical, it's not the whole pie. Rather than just cutting out a slice, we have cut out the center, perhaps, the center being the forgiveness of sins, because it's true to say the cross of Christ is the absolute center of Jesus' life and mission, and yet it's not the pie. What is the pie? What is the gospel of God all about? The pie is, again to use Jesus' phrase, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God, the present and future reign and rule of King Jesus, into which we're invited to participate as disciples. Disciples who are not only saved from our sins, but saved for a new life, life in the kingdom. Saved uh, for a life of representing the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. Now, could it be a reason why the American church is so ineffectual today that we have reduced the gospel of God to our manageable, little manageable size? Jesus died to enable us to live eternal life now, today, not just when we die. Jesus indwells us by his spirit so that we live out his life as ambassadors of his kingdom. That's the way to think about Easter. Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, is God's beachhead, that what God has done with Christ and in Christ, this is a sure sign of God's eternal plan. That's how Ephesians 1, verse 10, puts it, quote, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Ephesians 1, verse 10, all things. You know what that is? That is a large, expansive, that is a cosmic gospel. God's plan to unite and reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. Yes, it starts with forgiveness of sins, but it is so much bigger and greater and grander than that. It is indeed the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom. And discipleship is our invitation to participate in the beauty of God's life. An invitation to participate in the beauty of God's life. Dallas Willard writes, Today the Christian message is thought to be essentially concerned only with how to deal with your sin. Life, our actual existence, how we live is not included in what is now presented as the heart of the Christian message. He continues, But can we seriously believe God would establish a plan for us that essentially bypasses the needs of present human life? Can we believe that being saved really has nothing whatsoever to do with the kinds of persons that we are? Close quote. Well, I hope this is blowing your mind. Because of course, of course our gospel is too small. I'm just going to touch on uh, the other three reasons that our discipleship is so atrophied today, because over these weeks we'll be getting into more detail. But if the first culprit is our gospel is truncated, a second culprit is that our discipleship is too narrow, too narrow and shallow, as opposed to deep and whole. That's actually the next unit we'll be covering together, what is whole and deep discipleship. So we'll save that for next time. But a third culprit is that our spirituality is too individualized and privatized. We'll be touching on this later too, but for many of us, far too often, discipleship programs are just that, programs that target individual needs and preferences, and they're actually producing what you could call spiritual orphans. A theme of our weeks together will be that discipleship requires vibrant community. It requires other people and other friends, what the Bible dares to call our new family. But where I want to close tonight is the, is the true worm and the apple. Uh, the reason that for our great omission of discipleship is that the Jesus, the Jesus we know and name, our Jesus is not nearly as good and beautiful as the real Jesus. Even if you love Jesus, even if you've walked in with him for years, which of us could dare to say that we love Jesus as much as Jesus deserves to be loved? No one ever uh, penned it more beautifully than the writer Elizabeth Prentice in her immortal hymn, More Love to Thee. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ.
Christ to thee. Prentice was a uh, very intelligent uh, wife and mother with a, a keen sense of humor, a well-known author. One of her books, Stepping Heavenward, is still in print. It sold over 250,000 copies. But what you may not know about Prentice is that for much of her life, she lived as a near invalid. Her body was rocked with, racked with chronic pain. And uh, during these times, she said she learned a better way of finding her value and finding her worth. as she shifted from a lifestyle of from doing to being. Here's how Prentice put it. I see now that to live for God whether one is allowed the ability to be actively useful or not. This is a great thing. And it is a wonderful mercy to be allowed even to suffer, if by that one can glorify God. Now, if being physically incapacitated, as if that were not enough, during the 1850s, the Prentices lost a child, and shortly thereafter, they lost a second child. Through her grief, Prentice confided in her diary, empty hands, a worn-out, exhausted body, unutterable longings to flee from a world that has so many sharp experiences. It was during this time that Prentice penned the stanza for her most famous hymn, A Single Evening, but she never showed it to anyone for 13 years, until in 1869, right after the Civil War, the poem appeared in a leaflet form and was published for the first time. The third stanza reveals most clearly the personal story out of which her hymn comes. Let sorrow do its work, come grief or pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain, when they can sing with me more love, O Christ, to thee. I thought of those words many, many times and have wondered, can you imagine being able to sing those words and mean them? Near her death, Prentice wrote in her diary, to love Christ more is the deepest need of the human soul. Out in the woods and on my bed, when I am happy and busy and when I am sad and idle, the whisper keeps going up for more love, more love, more love. Often when it comes to discipleship, there is talk about the cost of discipleship. And there's a place for that. There is a cost. And Jesus talks about that. Yet just as important is to consider the cost of non-discipleship. That is, what does it cost us not to follow Jesus with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind? See, it's because Jesus' way and in his life, it's because he is better that there is a cost, an even greater cost, for choosing other ways, for choosing other masters, for choosing lesser loves. Our hearts and minds have to become convinced that Jesus and his love truly are better than life, that nothing is better than knowing, really knowing Jesus and how much we need him, so that we can sing, let sorrow do its work, come grief or pain. Sweet are thy messengers and sweet their refrain when they can sing with me more love, O Christ, today. How might you and I come to sing that? Another way of asking is how might we become wholehearted disciples of Jesus? One of our best living writers is Anne Lamont. She teaches Sunday school at her church. She says there are about three kids usually in her class, which makes me chuckle. Those kids have no idea that one of the best writers in America happens to be their Sunday school teacher. Lamont spoke recently about what she most wants the little kids to know. She calls her favorite lesson, Loved and Chosen. She goes around to each kid and picks out something unique and special and says, Is there anyone here wearing a Pokemon t-shirt? And she said, You know how those little kids are. They look up and down and one shoots his hand up and... and and she says, you, well, you know what you are? You're loved and chosen. And then she says, are any of the girls here wearing their dark hair pulled back and wearing a gray t-shirt? Another little girl raises his hand. and Lamont calls her by name and says, Mary, you're loved and chosen. Lamont says, isn't it wild? Isn't it the most radical thing you can ever decide to believe and live by? That you are loved and chosen as is, as is that you are safe. That when you come here with your juice boxes, when you come here wearing what you're wearing and just as you are, that you're loved and chosen.
Lamont calls this radical self-love, to accept the love of God, to believe that you're loved and chosen, even with our imperfect discipleship. See, of all the things we most need to hear today so that we might follow him better, it's knowing the real Jesus who has loved and chosen us. This is what changes us and makes us want to follow in his way, believing that what Jesus wants for us is our deepest happiness. Only when we know how good and beautiful the real Jesus and his love are. The gospel, not just of our little lives, but what Jesus calls the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of God, that God would not just die for us, but God is making all things new, and he invites us to participate in his beautiful new life as his apprentices, as his disciples. Only then will we want to choose the Jesus way with all of our heart and soul, strength and mind. Well, we'll talk more about that next week, but for now I just want to leave you with this precious reminder that Jesus' priority above all was discipleship, life in the kingdom. Follow me. See you next week.